he talks about what the state of Israel means to him. What it means to have a state, what it means to have Medina. And this is where he, the first time he really articulates to the masses, though so he did it before Mizrahi conferences, how he had a change of heart. And he joined the Mizrahim, he joined the Zionists. And he writes about it and he talks about, based off Shira Shirim, called Dodi Dofig, of course, is pulled from, Come, uh, Come my beloved Knox, is a verse in Shira Shirim. And I want to read to you from his drasha. And it's important to read it, to set, set the stage, to really read how he describes, and he's going to give a summary of Shira Shirim, and it's gripping in detail. And it's worth reading together. He writes, What is the gist of the Song of Songs? if not the description of the tragic and paradoxical delay of the Shalamit maiden, drunk with love and overwhelmed with yearning, when a favorable moment replete with awe and majesty beckoned to her. Shira Shirim has many different interpretations, but at its core, if you were to read it, each chapter describes how there's a lover and a beloved. And if you want to read that, it's Knesset Yisrael and God, it's each individual, individual Jew and God. If you want to read it, it's just two lovers. However you want to read it, it's that they're looking for each other, they're each roaming the land looking for each other. And the apex of the story, as we'll re- see in a moment, comes when finally the lover is in bed, or the beloved is in bed, and there's a knock on the door. The beloved finally caught up to her. There's a moment of meeting, the moment of anticipation, the moment where the whole book, the climax of the book, and as we'll see what happens, it doesn't turn out the way in which it should have. If not her, he she writes, the tender and delicate Shalamit maiden, impelled by longing for her bright-eyed beloved, roamed during sun-drenched days through the bypaths of vineyards and over the crests of mountains, through fields and gardens, and during pale, magical moonlight nights, during pitch-black nights between the walls, searching for her beloved. And that's the story for two chapters. One cold and rainy night, she returned to her tent, tired and worn out, and fell fast asleep. The sound of quick and light footsteps could be heard in the silence of the tent. On that strange and mysterious night, suddenly the beloved emerged from out of the dark and knocked on the door of his darling, who had intensely yearned for and awaited him. He knocked and pleaded with her to open the door of her tent. It is the voice of my beloved that knocks. Hishuli, open to me, my sister, my darling, Ryosi. My dove, my undefiled, my head is filled with dew. My locks with the drops of the night. This is a love song. This is a, a song that's reading, it's almost reading erotically. Which is why there was a point where it says in the Gemara, they wanted to remove this from the canon of Jewish texts. How can we read about this this way? How can we read about the love in such a way? Until Rabbi Kiva came along and said, this is not just holy, this is the holiest of holies. Kodesh Kadasha. And we're at the great moment that she had looked forward to with such impatience and longing, materializing unexpectedly. Unexpectedly, she's sitting there in bed. And suddenly the beloved who she's been chasing, and he's been chasing her, the moment comes. Her elusive, self-concealing beloved, tired of, one, tired of wandering, and hardships appeared with his curly hair, his black eyes, his powerful build, and radiant countenance. He stood by her door, stretched his hands through the hole in the door, in the latch, sought refuge from the damp of night and wished to tell her about his powerful love, about his desire and yearnings, about a life of companionship filled with delight and joy, about the realization and attainment of their aspirations and hopes. 
The moment is here. Only the slight movement of stretching out her hand in turning the latch intervened between her and her beloved, between the great dream and its complete fulfillment. With a single leap, the Shulamit maiden could have obtained her heart's longing. Mashcheni acherecha narutza, draw me. We will run after thee. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. But the heart is deceitful. And who can discern it? Precisely on that very night, a strange, stubborn indolence overcame her. For a brief moment, the fire of longing that had burned so brightly was dimmed. The fierce passion ebbed. Her emotion was stilled. Her dreams extinguished. The maiden refused to descend from her bed. She did not open the door of the tent to her handsome beloved. A cruel madness swept her into an abyss of oblivion and indifference. The maiden proved stubborn and lazy and rained out a multitude of excuses and rationalizations to account for her peculiar behavior. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it back on? I have washed my feet, how shall I soil them again? The beloved knocked again and again, and the more insistent his knocks, the louder they grew, the more her icy, defiling madness increased in intensity. As the whispered entries of the beloved pierced the silence of the night, the heart of his beloved became harder and harder, like stone. The beloved continued to knock, pleading patiently, and together with his knocks, the clock sounded the minutes and the hours. But the maiden paid no heed to the voice of her beloved. The dent to her tent, door to her tent remained shut up tight. The moment was lost, and the vision of an exalted life faded away. It is true that after a brief delay, the maiden awoke from her slumber, and confused and startled, leapt from her bed to welcome her beloved. <clears throat> I rose up <clears throat> to open to my beloved. But she arose too late. Her beloved had stopped knocking and vanished into the darkness of the night. My beloved has turned away and gone. Her life's joy has fled. Her existence, a destinate wilderness, an empty waste. The sag of her passionate quest began anew. She is still wandering amidst the shepherd's tents, searching for her beloved. Intentionally, Rabbi Salavechik, drawing from Shira Shirim, describing how there's a knock, a knock on the tent, a knock of the beloved coming to the lover and saying, I'm here, just open up for me. And the imagery he's painting is of God coming to the Jewish people and saying, I'm here, open the door up to me, recognize I am here again. Says Rabbi Salavechik, eight years ago, in the midst of the night of terror, filled with the horrors of Medanic, Treblinka and Buchenwald, in the night of gas chambers, in the crematoria, in the night of abs absolute divine self-concealment of Hester Punnett, in the night ruled by the Satan of doubt and apostasy, which sought to sweep the maiden from her house into the Christian church, in a night of contentious searching, of questing for the beloved, in that very night, the beloved appeared. God who conceals himself in his dazzling hiddenness suddenly manifested himself and began to knock at the tent of his despondent and disconsolate love, twist, twisting convulsively on her bed, suffering the pains of hell. As a result of the knock on the door of the maiden, wrapped in mourning, the state of Israel was born. What Rabbi Salvechik is saying here is he's imbuing the creation of the state of Israel with the divinity. He's saying it's no accident, as we'll see in a minute, that out of the depths of the Holocaust, a night of divine concealment, suddenly God appears. 
And God doesn't not just knock not once. It appears to me, he writes, God knocks six times, saying, Pizchuli, Mashreni Acharecha Narutza, open the door, draw after me. This is me. This isn't an accident that there's a state of Israel. This isn't just, for some reason, randomness among the nations, among the UN, that the state of Israel appears. Because this, a couple of Jews decided we want a nation like all other nations, and now a little nation emerges. This is God knocking on the door, exhibiting miracles. Not just one miracle, says the Rav, but six miracles. He writes, and we'll go through them briefly for those who come to lunch and learn. <clears throat> You'll know we went through this over two different lunch and learns. He goes first, the knock of the beloved is heard in the political arena. No one can deny that from the standpoint of international relations, the establishment of the state of Israel in a political sense was an almost supernatural occurrence. This is 1956. This is the height of the Cold War. Yet both Russia and the Western countries joined supporting the idea of establishment of the state, which is unheard of. Russia joining the Western nations, I guess now we can see a little more of the fissures that emerged. But Russia joining the U.S. to vote for the state of Israel amidst a Cold War? This makes no sense, he says. It makes no sense. And yes, we can start looking and rationalizing, oh, Russia had their vested interest and the United States had their vested interest. He goes, but I'll tell you what. I do not know whom the journalist with their own flesh and blood saw sitting in the chairman's seat during the fateful session when the General Assembly decided in favor of the establishment of the State of Israel. Because I don't know who everyone else saw. However, someone who at the time observes matters with all, with, well, with his spiritual eye could have sensed the presence of the true chairman who presided over the discussion, i.e. the beloved. It was he who knocked with his gavel on the podium. It was he who said, let there be a state of Israel. It was the voice of the beloved that knocked, knocked number one, knocking on the gate saying, I am here, open up the door. You may have gone through the hell of the Holocaust, but I'm back. I'm here, Hester Putnam is over. A miracle that the, that the UN, and he actually <coughs> writes, it could be perhaps the only thing the UN ever did right was the establishment of the state of Israel. Second, he writes, a knocking of the beloved on the battlefield. The small Israeli defense force defeated the mighty armies of the Arab countries. And yes, we can rationalize and talk about military strategy, but the fact that there were millions of people against the state of Israel, and yet we emerged victorious. That's God knocking. Third, he writes, the knocking of God on the theological tent. And this, he says, may be the strongest knock of them all. I don't want to go through this knock so much now, but the little I'll say about it is as follows. The concept in the church of replacement theology is a concept that why, according to the church, if the Jews have been replaced, if God replaced us, there's a New Testament, the Old Testament has been abrogated. There's no longer a covenant with the Jewish people. So why are the Jewish people still around? This is the question that the early church fathers had to deal with. Why would the Jewish people be around if our covenant has been abrogated by God if we no longer are the chosen people? And the theology, the doctrine goes, is that God has to keep some Jews around, and he spreads us to all four corners of the earth, so that we bear witness to the fact that we are no longer the chosen people. That the fact that God kept us around according to this doctrine, which is a very strong doctrine, is so that throughout the history, the Christians can point to us and say, you see how those people were the chosen people? Well, are they, are they living in Israel? Are they living in Judea? No. Do they have sovereignty? No. 
Do they have their temple? No. Are they subjugated and buffeted by the nations of the world, subjugated to the whims of whatever ruler they're living with, being expelled at whim, being murdered at whim? Yes, it must be. They're no longer the Jewish people. There's a very famous imagery. It's, on, it's, it's found throughout Christian artwork. I believe on the... Um, What's the cathedral that burned down a few years ago? Notre Dame Cathedral. It's above one of the doors. You can find it in a lot of artwork. And the picture, I'm forgetting the Latin name for it, is a picture of a woman, a young girl, holding a staff, standing proud, and beneath her is written Christendom, Rome. Next to her is a girl who's blinded, a broken staff, and chains, Judea. And this is the imagery which is really encapsulating this idea that the Jews are no longer. And the only reason we're around is because we are bearing witness to the fact that God has gotten rid of us. And this doctrine is really what served as the basis for so much anti-Semitism, for so much of the subjugation over history, because we're no longer the chosen people. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, you know what happened when we now reign sovereign in our land once again? When now we're back in Israel? What do you think that did to the Catholic Church? I'll tell you what it did. You know why it took 30 years before the Catholic Church was able to recognize the existence of the state of Israel? Why did they care? They're not a country. They're a small little city. Because they had to rewrite their doctrine. And they had to do this at a council, and I believe in the late 70s, early 80s, rewrite their doctrine to accommodate now for the new reality that they can no longer say the Jewish people don't have sovereignty. The Jewish people are no longer in their land. God knocked once again, on the theological tent, to tell the nations of the world, to tell the nations of the world that you can no longer say, we're just, we're no longer the chosen people. We're back. Number four, God knocked at the hearts of the perplexed and the assimilated youth. So many Jews who were assimilated suddenly woke up. They saw the miracles of the state of Israel. Ray Sachs writes about it in 1967 after the Six Day War, the, the pride that Jews felt walking with Yamagas once again. And we had an interesting discussion at the Lunch Learn this year. We said that so many of the Jews on campus nowadays, of the young teenagers on campus, they don't feel this pride anymore. That the state of Israel doesn't invoke within them a sense of pride, well within, well within them a sense of love, but it's the opposite. That because of the notions going on on campus, so often instead of the state of Israel being a knock, one of pride, it's a knock where they feel shame. So is this still true? Is it still true that the state of Israel, the fourth knock, the knock of waking up the youth to their religion, does it still hold true? And what we came to the conclusion is yes. Different than Rabbi Sachs in 1967 who said for the first time he felt comfortable wearing a yarmulke on campus because of what the, the victory in the Six-Day War. I think unfortunately it's a knock that the state of Israel reminds every Jew, even the most assimilated, that if you're a Jew, you're painted as a Zionist. If you're a Jew, you can try to assimilate and take on every single ide all the ideology of those who don't like Jews. But you're always going to be reminded that you're a Zionist. That for some reason, there's this Zionist test that they give to people on campus. They don't give it to every other denomination. But if you're a Jew, you have to sign pledges. Not in every campus, but often. You're a Jew, you're a Zionist, you no longer have a voice in certain spaces. You're a Jew, you're a Zionist, will kick you out of being a member and a founding member of the Women's March. You're a Jew, you're a, Jew, you're a Zionist. Unless you sign a pledge of anti-Zionism, we're not going to let you sing at a concert in Spain. You're a Jew, you're a Zionist. You don't have a place here. And so in a way, there's an awakening among the youth when they recognize as much as they want to assimilate. Unfortunately, the state of Israel does not allow them 
well, fortunately, doesn't allow them to sleep, but unfortunately, the reality is, it's through an anti-Semitism. They're given a purity test of do you or do you not believe in this Zionism? And if you do, you don't have a voice. You can't lend your voice to whatever we're talking about. Fifth, the beloved Knox says, Rizalvechik, that Jewish blood is no longer Hefker. No longer can you kill a Jew and think you can get away with it. Even if you're not in the state of Israel, the Mossad will come after you. And when you're in the state of Israel, you can't just kill Jews. You're now going to be accountable to the state of Israel. Number six, he says, this Tanakh, the gates of the land are always open. And how many Jews were turned back, had nowhere to go, when they realized they had to get out in the early 30s, mid-30s, late 30s, but nowhere to go. Nations of the world closed the borders, many in an act of anti-Semitism. But now, whatever happens here, we have a conviction. We know there's a land, there's a home for us where we can go. We can become part of society. Six knocks, says Rabbi Salavechik, I see. Six knocks took place on the eve of the Holocaust. And says the Rav, I don't want to fall prey to this maiden of not answering the door. What was our reaction to the voice of the beloved who knocked, of God's boundless kindness and wonders? God knocked again, knocked in the political arena. God knocked again, knocked in the military arena. God knocked in the theological arena. God knocked in the hearts of the Jewish youth. God knocked to say Jewish blood isn't cheap. God knocked to say that we always have a place to go. Six miracles. I don't want to be someone who doesn't open the door. And says the Rub, challenging the audience, did we descend from our couches and immediately open the door? Or did we, like the last of the Shalamis maiden, continue to rest and tarry rather than descend from our beds? I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I soil them? This is Rabbi Salavitchik writes, or talks about in Kol Dodi Dofik. Tzion halotishali. Have you inquired about Tzion? What he's saying to all of us is, do we recognize the great miracle of the state of Israel? Or maybe perhaps different than Rabbi Salavitchik's challenge to them of are you embracing it? For us, it's do we take it for granted? We live in a world where perhaps we take it so for granted that we just assume it's always going to be there. Like if you do a thought experiment, I believe someone did this and got into a lot of trouble in the 80s in Tradition Magazine. They said, imagine a world where Israel didn't exist. What would that do to us? Imagine one day just the government disbanded. We, maybe we, unlike the Salvation, we don't embrace the state of Israel, so we take it for granted. We don't realize, we don't marvel at the knocks, at the miracles of the state of Israel. But there's another element. Tzion, hello tishali. Tzion, do I inquire about you? The Rav writes that until now, the bulk of the kinos have been, or all the kinos have been about mourning the destruction. Talking about the death, the humiliation, the degradation, the killing, the murder, all that was lost in the destruction. The lost world of Israel, of Judea, the base of Migdash, the lost world of Kohanim and Leviim, the lost world of the Crusades, of, of, of the Shum, of the three cities, the lost world in Chalmanitsky, the lost world of European Jewry, at this point, we're, sh- we're switching over to and we're actually saying not the, mourning the destruction, but we're mourning the world that was. We're mourning the lost world of Europe. The world of all the Tamidi Chachamim, the world of the simple Jew. We're mourning the lost world of the Beis Hamigdash, not just the destruction, all the murder, but the everyday bringing the carbon Tamid. We're, the, we're mourning the loss of what was. It's a different type of mourning. 
And therefore, Yehuda Halevi is saying, Siyon Halotishali. He's asking a question. Do we inquire after the well-being of Israel, of Tzion? Tzion, Yehuda Halevi is saying, is my long-lost love. Tzion, he says, how are you? Tzion, he says, I miss you so much. Tzion, he says, I want to come home. Tzion Halotishali. Tzion, I'm constantly asking and asking and asking about you. When will I come home? When will I be where I'm supposed to be? He's challenging all of us. Do we miss Tzion? Do we ask about Tzion? Do we show all about Tzion? Do we dream about Tzion? Do we dream about Aliyah? Do we dream about reuniting? Do we dream about Tzion? Are we so caught up in building the lives we have here? Setting down roots we have here that we forget. Tzion Halotishali. There's somewhere else we're supposed to be. That whatever we plant here, there are no roots. The beautiful buildings we build here, there's no foundation. The life we have here is shallow. Because we don't belong here. Tzion halotishali. Tzion, I dream about you. Tzion, you're my love. Tzion, I miss you so much. In two days' time, we're going to read Parshas Ve'eschanan, which opens up with Moshe davening, says Rashi, Moshe davening, 515 times to be able to enter into Tzion. 515 times he's diving until God says, enough, Moshe, stop. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You're not going to enter the land. You're going to get to the border, and that's where you're going to stop. You cannot enter the land of Israel. Why then did God let Moshe daven so many times? Why did Moshe, who knew he wasn't going to enter, why did he continuously daven and daven and daven? It's almost, it's, a, it's, it's chutzpah. God says, you're not going in. So enough. Benug, you're a nudnik. You're davening and davening? God said no. God said no. It's not like us. Maybe God said yes. God said no. We daven. God said no. Moshe, you're not going in. End the story. And Moshe's like, please God, please God, please God, please God, please God. If that was our kid, he'd be in his room by that point. He wouldn't have dessert. He wouldn't have his bicycle. And everything else we take away from our kids at that point. Enough, Moshe. Enough. And yet Moshe says again, I want to enter. I want to enter. I want to enter. Says the Ibn Ezra. Because Moshe wasn't asking any more of God to enter. He knew he wasn't going to enter. He knew he'd get to the mountaintop and that was it. He knew he'd get to the border and that was it. But what Moshe was doing was saying, Tzion, hello Tishali. Tzion, I miss you. Tzion, I love you. Tzion, I'm dreaming about you. Tzion, 515 times. I may not get there. I may not be allowed to enter. But I'm not going to stop dreaming about entering. I'm not going to stop wishing and willing and wanting to enter. I'm not going to stop realizing that whatever I do here, it's shallow, it's empty. The plants I'm planting have no roots. The building I'm building have no foundation. This is now where I belong. I'm not going to take for granted Tzion. I love Tzion. There's a story about a Rebbe. I forgot which Rebbe it was, but let's just say it wasn't the Rebbe who we put in the Zionist camp. And he flew with a bunch of his Hasidim to Israel. And they landed on a Friday morning, and the first thing they did was drove up to Tzfat to spend Shabbos there. Friday night, davening in Tzfat, overlooking the hills of Yerushalayim, overlooking the beautiful Kinnera. They had a wonderful, inspirational, moving Kabbalah Shabbos. After Kabbalah Shabbos, one of the Hasidim turned to his rabbi and said, Rabbi, had we just flown to Israel to come to Tzfat for this Friday night Kabbalah Shabbos, this Friday night service, overlooking the beautiful, beautiful hills of Eretz Israel, it would have been enough. It would have been worth it. And the Rebbe looked at him and said, My dear Chassid, had we landed on the tarmac 
turned around and took off again, it would have been enough. It would have been worth it. Do we miss Israel? Do we love Israel? This Shabbos is the first yard site of my great-grandmother, Sarah Minabas Rav Simcha, known to everyone as Bubby. Bubby used to regale us with the stories of her youth. She grew up in Mezrich, or Mezirich, depending on where you're from. She lived in the shadow of the impending war. For her, she knew the Jewish future was bleak. Their security was compromised, but she said, you know what they dreamed about? You know what they constantly said? Tzion halo tishali. How are you, Tzion? They had no idea what was going to happen. But they sang, Our hope is not lost. They sang the songs of Zion, they hoped, and they prayed they returned to Eretz Yisrael. Tzion halo tishali. That was the constant refrain on their lips. We want to return to you. And I'll tell you, never, never in a million years, growing up as a 14 and 15-year-old girl in Mezrich, spending her years 16 and 17 on the run, running through Europe, living in the DP camps when she was 20 years old in Austria, never in a million years did she imagine she would one day walk on the soil of a Jewish state. Never in her wildest dream did she think she would see the founding of a Jewish state the rebirth of a Jewish future, of our future in the land. Never in, the wild, in her wildest dreams, during the horror of those years of rage, when she saw the death of her family, the end of her community, the end of her way of life that she imagined, that one day she would stand in 2012 on the streets of the old city of Yerushalayim and watch hundreds of thousands of children walk through the streets of Yerushalayim and Yom Yerushalayim waving flags. She was, as David Amel said, like a dreamer because her whole life she lived. Tzion, I love Tzion, I want you. Tzion, I miss you. Tzion, I need you. There was a simplicity to Bobby's love for Tzion. There was a clarity to Bobby's love for Eretz Yisrael. There was a clarity in her ability to say, Tzion, I miss you. A clarity we may have lost. We live in a world where the complexity of politics, the messiness, of building a state, which yes, 75 years later, we're still grappling with how to build a state, the correct way for our, the systems of government, the correct way to adjudicate things, the correct way for so many things. And that can sometimes mar our passion and dampen our dreams for Tzion. It can cause us to stop asking Tzion, hello Tishali, Tzion, I miss you. Sometimes in our rush to be nuanced or to be quote unquote sophisticated, we lose the sense of clarity that my bubby held into her, the end, her end of her days, that when she saw her to Israel, she recognized this was a place that for thousands of years, our ancestors were asking, Tzion halo tishali. It's what they dreamed about. It's what they wished for. It's where they willed to return. Having lived through what she lived through during the years of wrath, she was a dreamer. She was literally, as we said last night, ani ha-gever asher ha-ani. She was the person who saw the affliction. She saw the destruction of European Jewry. She saw the destruction of her family, the loss of everything. And then she was able to witness the children of Yerushalayim. The Yiladim, the Yilados, the Sachkim Yerushalayim. Walking through and singing in the streets of Yerushalayim. Hayinu Kachom, she was a dreamer. When we see Yerushalayim, when we see Eretz Yisrael, we need to say, Tzion halo tishali. 
to recognize that our future is in the land of Israel. To recognize that for whatever reason we're here and there are legitimate reasons to still be in Linden, New Jersey. The legitimate reasons to still be wherever we are in the Gullis. But we don't belong here. See you on the the constant refrain we have to say is, see you and I miss you. See you and I want to be there. To remember as Bobby taught us to never take Israel for granted. To never lose a sense of awe of what this miracle is. Six knocks God came to us and knocked six times. And we have to open that door and recognize that miracle. And then we should always, always be saying, Tzion, hello to Shelly. Tzion, I miss you. Tzion, I love you. Tzion, I want to come home. Kinnah number 36, Tzion, hello to Shelly.